Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the national anthem, that Zoom cat video everyone's talking about. And then we're joined by Chris Green, professor of public theology at Southeastern University. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Uh, it is, what is, what is it? Is it penultimate? Is that one the second to last or do I have my words completely wrong? It's the no. second to last show. Yes. Did I get it right? Well done. People do not know penultimate. I've always gotten a little confused by it. It's like with bi-monthly. Is that every other month or twice a month? <laughs> it actually, it actually means both. I know it does. I learned that. I was like, that's not fair. <laughs> no, no, like most things in English, it just it is not fair. You're right. Exactly. But for those of you who have not been listening, uh, we announced earlier in the week that Ian, and we'll talk about this a lot over the next two days, but uh, Ian's time at the Common Good will be done at the end of Friday's show. He is moving, him and his family are moving to Nashville, Tennessee, as Ian is going to be uh, what is your title? I almost said lead pastor, but lead pastor of teaching. Is that what you said you were? That's right. Yep. There'll be uh, two lead pastors, a lead pastor of teaching and a lead pastor of strategy. Yep. And so Ian is a lead pastor of teaching at The Bridge down in Nashville. It's a church I'm aware of, and it is a phenomenal church. So mm-hmm. we're all excited for him, but sad for us. And so we have this show and the next show. Uh, you might be wondering what happens after Ian leaves. We're all still wondering that. So the common good will continue. I'll continue in uh, when we know exactly how it all is going to play out, you will be the first to know. We'll let you know uh, for sure. We look forward to that as well. But we want to start today's show uh, kind of how we normally do our show. And then we're going to turn in the second hour where we've asked Ian to kind of identify what are some of his favorite interviews that we've done over the past two plus years that we've been together. And we're going to replace some of those interviews today and also uh, during the second hour of tomorrow's show as well. So hopefully you will enjoy that. But Ian, uh, before we get into the uh, the farewells and such, let's just jump into a little news. And uh, a silly story here. I'm sure you saw this from earlier in the week because everybody saw this. The whole uh, Zoom video of the lawyer who couldn't turn off the cat filter. And he decided to say in the middle of it, I'm not a cat and I'm ready to continue. A, I'm sure you saw this, but B, uh, here's the age old question. You can never really figure out why things go viral, but I'm going to ask you anyway, why do you think that this is something that people are finding so funny and passing around? And it's something <laughs> I saw on the today show the other day on CNN, like it's everywhere. Uh, assuming you saw it, why do you think that this has kind of uh, caught the attention and the humor of our country right now? I think honestly, there there's probably some similarities between this and the Bernie meme, because it's sort of like, okay, who doesn't find this funny? Like it's it's not controversial, it's not edgy, it's not partisan, it doesn't, you know, involve religion or anything politics, any of that. I, I think <laughs> the first time I saw it, I you know, giggled at the beginning, but when he said I'm not a cat, that was for me, I was like, I'm done. I am <laughs> I I lost it. Like more so than I probably should have, because it it's just such an endearing like as if somebody else on the other end of that was really concerned that it actually was a talking cat. This guy wanted to make sure like it just just so everyone's clear. Don't be alarmed. I'm not a cat. <laughs> I just his impulse to explain that was I, so funny to me and so endearing. And I honestly I think I think that there's 
there's something to this. And we've talked a, a number of times now about the Bernie meme. I think there's such unrest and such anxiety and everyone feels it to some degree that there's almost an increased desire for like something, even something silly to like unify some little thing to even come up for air for a minute and, and laugh together. I think people are really, really not just like seeing, but seeking those types of things in a time that feels really tumultuous and everyone's dealing with their own grief and trauma and all that. So that's, it's probably a lot of right time, right place, but it is legitimately just really funny to me personally. I have a weird sense of humor, but I found it to be uh, very funny. I did too. I like you. I love that part where he's like, I am ready to go and I'm not a cat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, but by the grace of God, go I, right? You know better than almost anybody how much I struggle with technology at certain times. So how this hasn't happened to me, I'm not sure. (laughs) But I also think that's why everyone is kind of loving it. How many of us who are a little older uh, are like, yeah, yep. I could totally see how he got accidentally got on one of his kids filters and couldn't get off Mm -hmm, of it. mm -hmm. And, uh, We've all been there. So if you haven't seen that video yet, I don't know how you haven't, but I would encourage you to go through it. But I, I think Ian's right. I think there's something about just shared laughter about something just silly that we're all longing for in the midst of a pandemic and an impeachment trial and all, you know, bitter cold temperatures and all of these things. So uh, the other story I wanted to get to that I saw, uh, it that caught my eye. And I want to give you one more chance to get yourself in trouble before you, you move to Nashville here. But I actually, in all seriousness, I found this to be very interesting because the NBA stepped in and made a change. But before that, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, said, you know what, with all that's going on and all the different different opinions and all this stuff, we're going to stop playing the national anthem before our home games. And he made this decision. They've already done it. Uh, and then they got kind of an uproar over the last couple of days and the NBA stepped in and said, no, uh, especially as fans come back. Uh, it's the policy that all NBA teams, all home teams have to play the national anthem. And Mark Cuban said, OK, you know, I'm part of this part of this bigger league. I will listen to them. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, and so, Ian, this isn't about patriotism versus not being patriotic or this and that, but. Does it ever strike you as surprising? And do you have any thoughts or opinions about literally the playing of the national anthem before sporting events? Because that has been such a firestorm in our culture that when I read Mark Cuban's thing, I was like, that's smart. Like if this is actually if the the national anthem is kind of dividing people and their rhetoric and all of this stuff, maybe this is the right way to go. Now, the NBA said not so much. Wondering if you saw this story and if so, or now you're reading it. What were your thoughts on it? I mean, I was kind of surprised, to be honest. Uh, I know I know very little about Mark Cuban, so I you know somebody else who follows him more closely might might not have been surprised at all. I think the history of why we do it in the first place is interesting. And uh, you mentioned, I mean, your statement earlier might be more controversial than anything I'm going to say. We're like, yeah, it's not about being patriotic or unpatriotic. Somebody might be saying I completely disagree. You know, the playing it, not playing it, standing or kneeling is about patriotism. Like I'm kind of. I want to kind of David Fitch this for a moment and put it back on you. Like what, <laughs> back on me. what, yeah. Why, why can you with confidence say that it's, it's not about being patriotic or unpatriotic. Uh, if I'm being honest, I was trying to give you a little bit of wiggle room out there, but to be, but I'll take it. Um, you know what, for me, I love the national anthem. Like uh, one of the things I made sure to do when I take my son to games all the time is like, all right, take your hat off, but nope, we stand quietly. But if you're honest, bathrooms are open, food lines are open, all of this stuff. I also think that you can be patriotic 
uh, it's what we've talked about before about country, about church, that sometimes the most loving thing to do is to critique. And I think that's what people have tried to do through the national anthem. I've just always found it really odd that, you know what, when I go to a concert, we don't start with the national anthem. When I go to a play, it doesn't start. It's just sports. Uh, and and I've actually brought this up to somebody of a good friend of mine. I was like, I just don't think this is before the Mark Cuban stuff. I was like, I don't think they should do the national anthem if it's going to cause all of this. Like, what's the point at a sporting event? And you would have thought I said we should become communists. Like, it was like, we have to do the anthem. And I said to him, mm-hmm. I said, what about a concert? What about a plays? What about a movie? Like, there's nowhere else you're expecting this but sporting events. And that conversation didn't go very far. Hmm. I, my point is, I don't think it would be unpatriotic to go, you know what? Let's just remove it from sporting events. Uh, I'm not saying I love the national anthem and and this and that, but uh, I could see, I, I see, I guess I'll end it this way. I totally saw where Mark Cuban was coming from and the NBA was like, nope, we're not going to do it that way. Uh, and so be it. And and uh, Mark Cuban has been very open to, you know what, I'm, I'm, supportive of my players doing whatever they feel right during the national anthem. So that's uh, an interesting story that uh, has had some twists and turns and some opinions. Go ahead and check it out at our Facebook page. Also check out the cute cat video from zoom. (laughs) If you haven't already seen it. Well, coming up next, Chris green professor of public theology at Southeastern university. Also the author of sanctifying interpretation, vocation, holiness, and scripture. Chris green is going to join us next for two segments here on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the common good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Hope you are having a great day. And we are thrilled to be joined uh, on the phone from Tulsa, Oklahoma, I believe he said. Uh, Chris Green. Chris is a professor of public theology at Southeastern University. Also author of Sanctifying Interpretation, Vocation, Holiness, and Scripture, which just this past July, the second edition of Sanctifying Interpretation came out. So, Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Brian. Good to be here. I'm looking forward Absolutely. to it. Uh, the way we love to start these interviews is just asking, letting our guest introduce themselves so our, our audience can get to know you a little bit. So why don't you introduce yourself however you'd like? Okay. Yeah, that's that's a lot of pressure. I <laughs> I'm I'm a theologian mostly. I mean, not I have other jobs, but I am primarily a professor of public theology, as you said, at Southeastern University, which is in Lakeland, Florida, between Tampa and Orlando. And I am also a teaching pastor at a church here in Tulsa. So my family and I now live in Tulsa, and my wife and I grew up here, and our first um, kid was born here. Mm. But we, you know, had been away from Oklahoma for a while, came back in this past summer to live here again, reconnecting with with family. And all all during that time, even while I was gone, I was working at a church here in Tulsa. So for a long time, I lived in Tennessee and Florida, even though I was pastoring in Tulsa. And now I live in Tulsa, even though I'm a professor in Florida. (laughs) I'll, I'll bet you someone will come up with a term for that 15 years from now, what the, what that actually looks like professionally. And you you mentioned, or Brian did at least, Sanctifying Interpretation, Vocation, Holiness, and Scripture. The second edition is now available. I was telling you offline here that uh, two or three of my, my favorite people in the world reference you and your writing and your thinking and your teaching a lot. I'd love to just kind of begin with a 30,000-foot perspective. What What is this book really trying to accomplish? 
Yeah, I think the heart of the book is grappling with why is Scripture difficult Mm -hmm. and what is the most honest, truthful way to kind of face that difficulty. I, I think in many of the churches that I've been a part of, both serving in and attending, there, there's a there's a kind of devotion to simplicity as kind of the criterion for truth, right? So if something is true, it's simple. And the simpler it is, the truer it is. And the more important it is, the more simple it has to be and so on. And for a long time, I struggled with why Scripture doesn't seem to work that way mm-hmm. and how much of what I, what I was taught explicitly and implicitly, right? So some of it was people telling me outright how to read. And a lot of it was just stuff I caught, you know about the way to read scripture, I felt like it was untrue to what's actually happening in the text. And then most of that stuff I intuited, you know, as a kid, a teen. And then when I started doing my studies, you know, for the theological studies, doing master's degrees and my doctorate degrees, I, re- I realized pretty quickly that this way of seeing scripture as something simple and straightforward mm-hmm. is new in the history of the Christian tradition. That's not how Christians throughout our history and around the world have, have understood what scripture is doing. Mm-hmm. So I wanted, I wanted to kind of grapple that grapple with that. Like what, what does that, what does it look like? Yeah. That's fascinating. Chris, could you flesh out a little bit more what you just touched on there that it's not how it's been done in history or around the world? How is how we handle scripture uh, here in the West, different from how it's been done historically and, as you said, around the world. Yeah. I mean, so obviously for the sake of this conversation, I'll oversimplify a bit. No n- n- pun intended there. But I think, that, <laughs> I think that part of what happened is, you know, in the rise of the modern world after the Reformation, after the Enlightenment, there is a crisis of authority, a crisis of which voices to listen to and how to know the truth and how to know that we know the truth. I mean, there's you know, all kinds of ripple effects of this crisis. And one of the ways that that people attempt to solve it is by presenting the Bible as an answer book, that the Bible Mm -hmm. has an answer to everything from science to psychology, to marital advice, to parental advice, um, job creation, you know, like whatever, whatever the issue is, the Bible is the answer book. And of course, mostly also for our salvation and how to go to heaven and not go to hell. Hmm. And, in order for that to work, you need a kind of theory that the Bible is simple and straightforward and that everything critical in the Bible, everything that's really, really important, can be understood easily by anyone who's sane, right? I mean, anyone who's sensible at all can just read the Bible for what it says. When they see it, it means what it says in some straightforward sense, and that becomes the basis of authority. And I think that, unfortunately, that's that's a really... It's it's proven to be over time a really dangerous way of handling the text, a, a yeah. really destructive way, in, in part because it violates what the scriptures themselves actually are. Hmm. And so, when I say it's not a traditional way of reading, what I mean is if you if you go back, you know, to the beginning of the church in the ancient world, you don't see that way. You don't see people talking that way about scripture. Just the opposite, in fact, right? These these early right. church figures, leaders apostles and bishops and theologians and monks. I mean, they all kind of own that scripture is challenging. Scripture is challenging in a whole range of ways. And so the book, the second edition, I start off with Origen, who's an an early church theologian, African Mm -hmm. theologian, who's, 
who talks very honestly about how challenging scripture is and all the various ways it's challenging and calls us to read it in ways that are true to the character of God. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm essentially arguing that we need to recover that, return to that mm-hmm. kind of wisdom. So Brian and I are both pastors, we're practitioners, uh, but we're also, you know, people who like to study and read and understand. And I think some of the statements that I tend to get the biggest pushback from, especially in a, in a pulpit situation, if I say something like the Bible was written for us, but not to us, uh, people tend to get really, really on edge. Like, you know, especially like you were saying, if there's a tendency to say, hey, the Bible says it, that settles it. Someone that maybe claims like, ah, I'm just it's just a plain reading of the text and anything other than that is uh, somehow you know, unorthodox or maybe worse. What do you say to the person who just heard what you said and is grappling with that? Like, oh gosh, what what hope do I have then if I'm not a, a Bible scholar to really understand what these scriptures mean for me individually and for us collectively as a community? Yeah, thank you for that question. I, first, I would say what I'm contending for is not actually scholarly readings. I, I don't think that the the problem is primarily one of lack of scholarship. I think, I mean, of course I am a scholar and I think that there are people who are called to that life and, and those people are, are meant to serve the church. Right. But I'm I'm not saying something like every Christian has to have the equivalent of a PhD or a master's degree to read scripture. Well, that's not what I mean. What I mean is scripture is, is challenging and difficult and is intended to be by God for our good. I mean, part of what I'm arguing in the book is that God designed scripture to be challenging and challenging in a range of ways hmm. precisely because that challenge is formative for us that the, right. the difficulty of the text uh, shapes us so i think th- the first thing i would want to say right is just i'm not calling for more academic readings really hmm. i'm i'm calling for spiritual readings that are attentive to what the text actually says and allows it to challenge us, including challenging our convictions. And I think Hmm. the last thing I'll say is in response to that anyway, unless you just, you know, cut me off altogether. (laughs) And it's truly the last thing I'll say (laughs) is that I, I do think there is a danger in evangelical circles of attributing to scripture, what actually belongs to God, starting to say things Hmm. about scripture that we should only say about God. Hmm. And that we, our trust is not in scripture. Our trust is in God. And we can read scripture well and trust that God is at work in that because we trust God. We trust that that God's wisdom is sufficient in in giving us the text we need and giving us the wisdom we need to read it well. Hmm. Uh, There's a lot there. That's really good. You're listening to Chris Green, uh, author of Sanctifying Interpretation, Vocation, Holiness, and Scripture. Uh, the second edition of that just came out this summer. We'd encourage you to go pick it up. And Chris, you said something really interesting that I would love for you to unpack. And you essentially said, we attribute to scripture what should only be attributed to God. You said something to that effect. Could you yeah. uh, unpack? Because there's probably people going, mm, I don't know about that, or I've never heard that before. So sure. could you unpack that for us a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, to do that justice, I mean, it's it's hours and hours of conversation. <laughs> yes, right. But I, I think just to kind of pull the thread a little bit is is to say if you look at Christian confessions of belief historically, you know, so if you go back and look pre-Reformation at what Christians say they believe, and then track from the Reformation forward, you can start to see that one of the shifts that happens 
is that traditionally Christian belief starts with a confession about God, right? So like in the church where I serve, every Sunday we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, the Holy Spirit, the communion of the saints, and so on. But what happens after the Reformation, because of the crisis of authority that's happening in the emergence of the modern world, is that more and more Christians have to talk not about God, but about the basis for their beliefs about God. They have to kind of get back behind their confessions about God as Trinity or mm. God as Savior or God as Creator to theories about authority. How do we know that what we're claiming about God as Trinity is true? And what that leads to more and more and more and more is an emphasis on the Bible and on the Bible as the foundation for our convictions. So one of the things I want to say, and, and I hope you know the hearers who are still listening <laughs> can hear this, <laughs> I, in, in so many evangelical circles, everything boils down to a binary between conservative and liberal readings, and, and everything is about the authority of Scripture. So conservatives hold to the authority of Scripture, liberals do not. And then liberals read the text in ways that you know justify whatever they want to justify, etc. But that that actually is really unhelpful when you're trying to look at the history of Christian readings of Scripture. Like once it, you know that that works in a in a vacuum or in a small hmm. circle, but once you get a kind of bigger picture view of the way the church has read Scripture, those those categories don't work very well anymore. Right and. Right. What I'm advocating, just to be clear, is not some kind of liberal counterpart to a conservative approach to Scripture, but something that is much, much older. I, I was talking with a friend the other day who was, you know, having some difficulty with what I was saying about these things, hmm. and he was saying, you know, he's like, "I'm just so conservative," and I was like, "Oh no, 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 no! The view you hold of Scripture." <laughs> is about 50 years old, maybe 60 years old. The view I hold of Scripture is about 1,800 years old. And so your view may be right. I'm not saying you're not, you're not right. I'm just saying it's far too new for me. <laughs> like right. I can't, it's, far too, uh, it's far too innovative. And so some of this is about getting that larger view of how the church has read the text. And it's not to say that you know the way it's been handled in the past is necessarily better mm. than the way we're handling it now. Some of it depends on what you think the problems are, right? So part of my calling has been trying to deal with the questions in our circles that don't seem to have good answers. And it was that, it's questions about suffering, questions about providence and evil, questions about God as healer and why mm. healing sometimes, you know, so I, I've been all my life in the Pentecostal world. So these are mm -hmm. the kinds of problems that, that were as a theologian and as a pastor, I had to face. Wow. And one of the things I discovered in the midst of all that, which is obviously too much to unpack in, you know, 20 minutes is <laughs> that the, the way I had been given to read scripture, not only didn't fit the historical pattern and not only seemed to obscure what was in the text itself, it didn't work pastorally for the people I was pastoring. Right, right. And I'm, it's not to say it doesn't work for everybody. I mean, I'm not trying to speak for everybody. I'm just saying it didn't work for me. Yeah. And that it wasn't as simple as, well, then I'll try the the left wing version of this <laughs> approach. It was, you know, I want out of that. I want out of that contract altogether. Like, I, I don't think the, the structure works. Hmm. See, and I think that segues really well, because I want to make sure that I cover another book that you wrote called Surprised by God, How and Why what we think about the divine matters. 
I'm thinking about, I think it was Tozer who said something like, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important yep. thing about us, right? C.S. Lewis yes. talks a number of times about, I want God, not just my idea of God, but that feels inescapable. How do we even dissect or separate my ideas about God and try to encounter and think about the divine himself or itself? How do you, uh, how do you help people walk through that? Yeah, so I, I think the, the subtitle is, is a little challenging, I guess. It, it's, mm. it's, um, it seems jumbled, but it's important. And, and I, I insisted on it with the editors that we need – it's not only how, what we think about the divine, but how right. we think about it that matters, right? And, mm. and what, I'm, what I'm trying to get there when I talk about the how is the spirit of it, that mm. when we come to thinking about God – just as when we come to God in prayer, there should be a humility and a courage and, and a kind of raw honesty about that approach. And I think that's the only way for us to grapple well with the what, what we're going to say about God. So the circles I grew up in and have served in, there's a lot of talk about the character of God. God is good. God is faithful. Mm-hmm. God is generous, so on. But there's not much talk about how that relates to the nature of God, God as eternal or infinite, etc. And that there's a kind of poverty of deep theological conviction, right? So there's kind of an, an, ex, an assumption that the deeper the theology is, the less we have to worry about it, right? And that goes back to the, one of the first points I made in the last segment about our addiction to simplicity. We think if something mm-hmm. is really true, it has to be simple. And by simple, we mean accessible to anyone who's half awake, right? But I don't think that's actually how God has revealed himself. I don't think that's what scripture actually gives us. And I I think that there's something about the challenge of truth, that, that truth is not easy to grasp. And even the truths that seem simple or straightforward actually are not. You know, things like love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's pretty straightforward until you start to ask what that means in any concrete situation. You know, what what if my neighbor is a terrorist? What if my neighbor is a pedophile? What if my neighbor, you know, is the, the criminal I've arrested and I'm a police officer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like it becomes really difficult as soon as you start to think about it. Right. And I think that part of what I'm arguing in that book is that the work of theology, it's not identical with prayer, but it's inseparable from prayer. And that how we approach God in prayer and how we approach what we're going to say about God and think about this God we pray to has to be prayerful. It has to be humble, but has to also be courageous. We have to be willing to let God kind of lead us where we might not want to go. Right, mm-hmm. And that I think – so I'm, I'm always struck by that story at the end of the Gospel of John where Jesus you know, says to Peter, you know, this is what's going to happen to you, you know, in your in – your, old age, you're going to be led where you do not want to go. Right. And that I think is, you know, that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. I, mm-hmm. That to me, all of that is, is of a, of a piece. It's the shape of the cross in the Christian life. And Chris, our favorite guests are the ones where we're left at the end going, I got more questions. Yeah, <laughs> I want to keep talking. So I really want to thank you for coming on before we let you go. Where can people read more of your stuff, social media, you know, blog, website, whatever, where can people find you if they want to read more? Sure. So I, I'm on Twitter, but I have not been active for a little while. I, I will be again. I am going to have a website up soon. It's still in the process of being mm-hmm being built out. But if you just do C E W green at Twitter 
or at CEW green, I guess same thing for Instagram <laughs> and the CEW green will be the link for the website too. When, awesome. when that's up. And then of course, you know, th- those books are available in the online bookstore. Awesome. Yeah. We'd encourage you to go get the second edition of sanctifying interpretation, vocation, holiness, and scripture, as well as surprised by God, how and why, what we think about the divine matters. Chris Green, uh, thank you for your time, Chris. We really, it's great to meet you. And we're really yeah. glad that you joined us today. Thank Thanks you so guys. Much, Absolutely. You're listening to the common good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I am Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Well, as we've been saying, uh, we are in our, I'm going to keep using the word since I got it right, our penultimate show together uh, before Ian signs off for the last time. And so, Ian, what better article to send you out on than the Gospel Coalition? Now, there's no list in this one, which you'll be surprised by. Uh, (laughs) But this blog by Kevin DeYoung of Faith and Fear, I found this very interesting about faith and fear uh, and kind of that idea throughout Scripture. So why don't you get us into what Kevin DeYoung had to say here? Well, before I do, Brian, you'll be happy to know that it is National S'mores Day. So it's finally... No, it's not. It's not. You're right. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that would have been the that would have been like the greatest. I would have signed off with you right there. <laughs> we just we just ride off into the into the sunset. Just we made it to s'more day. Uh, we made it to s'more day. It was it was predetermined, predestined. It's appropriate that we're reading Gospel Coalition now. Um, yes, right. <laughs> that was good. I can't help it. All right, so this is from Kevin DeYoung of Faith and Fear. This is a, I want to ask you in a second why you chose this one because I think that this is people probably know at this point like we alternate who chooses what articles per week. This is right. your week as a sort of send-off week. And I'd be curious to know why, why this one in particular. But it begins by just simply saying, faith over fear. It's one of those Christian slogans that is undeniably true, and yet at the same time, less helpful than it may seem. To be sure, our lives as Christians ought to be marked by faith, not fear. Over and over, the Bible tells us not to be afraid. We should fear not, for the Lord will help us. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of self-control. Jesus himself repeatedly exhorts his people not to be afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. The reason the Christian can face life unafraid is not because we are intrinsically brave, let alone uh, because nothing bad will ever happen to us. The reason we do not fear what man or disease or weather or accidents can do to us is because we fear God instead. Scripture is full of commands like the Lord your God, you shall fear. Serve the Lord with fear. Fear God and keep his commandments or simply fear God. We know that the fear of the Lord is clean in the beginning of wisdom. This is a crucial message in our day. The Daily News doesn't get our attention by broadcasting good news. It gets eyeballs with bad news. Politicians get our support by stoking fear and what the other side will do if they win. Social media influencers hold our attention not by painting a balanced picture of possibilities and trade-offs, but by depicting a dystopian nightmare that's one wrong move, one disappointing election, one disturbing trend away from reality. The truth is we can be fearful people, irrationally jumping to the worst possible conclusions, perversely relying on doomsday predictions to give us our emotional fix, unthinkingly forming our opinions or even our doctrines based on the loudest and latest jerrymades. Jerrymades? Jeremyads. Don't know that word. Do you know that word? <laughs> I do not. I'm sure you go with Jeremyads, <laughs> is how I'm going to read that. So, yes, faith over fear is, need, is a needed word for our day. And yet, the slogan is in desperate need of some balance of its own. So, before he kind of gets into the balance, what do you, what do you think? 
of not only kind of his setup, but some of his assessment of how politics and social media has formed a lot of us, Christ followers included. Yeah, I, th- I think it's on the right path. And you asked, why did I choose this one other than it being a new one at the Gospel Coalition? I also... Uh, I've, <laughs> I've admitted to you before being a somewhat fearful person, like being a timid person at times. No, timid's not the right word. Uh, I can look at situations and be kind of paralyzed by fear. Like, ah, if I do mm-hmm. that, it could go wrong. Uh, and so you, people like that can tend to just beat themselves up and be like, you know, you need to have more faith. You need to have more faith, but, but it's not a dichotomy of faith versus fear all the time or faith over fear. Uh, and so I do think he does a good new, he begins nuancing here that, there are times where we are called to faith, but there are also things that are scary in the world. And then he gets into the fear of the Lord and this and that. But I, I do think we as Christians do ourselves a disservice when we uh, discount that there are things in this world that are still to be that cause fear and cause anxiety mm-hmm. and cause us to stay up at night, like, to lie awake at night, whether it be a pandemic or your children or your you know job loss or whatever else it might be. Uh, and, and I think we do a disservice when we tell people, oh, just have more faith, just have more faith and you won't be free. You won't have any fear or you won't have any anxiety or you won't be sad or whatever else it might be. Uh, and I, so I do certainly think there needs to be a nuance because I also think it's true that we don't just say, well, let your fear overtake your faith at all times. Don't ever step into things that cause you fear. I also think that that's not helpful. So Finding that balance and finding that nuance, I think, is important. I think to Young, I know he goes some different ways with it, but I think at, at points here he gets at that. Well, and I'd be curious to know why you think we are so attracted to idioms and maxims like this, even though we know that they're incomplete or that it's maybe a helpful starting point. Like if anyone's ever really dealt with crippling fear or anxiety, let's say anxiety. And, you know, everyone loves to quote Philippians, maybe being anxious about nothing. Like, oh, great. Well, I'm done being anxious then. Like there's a, <laughs> I, yeah. I often wonder, what do you think the outcome will be of just telling somebody, uh, have faith over fear? And again, I think a lot of times it's with the very best of intentions. It's yep. a loved one not wanting another loved one, a dear friend, a family member to to live in fear. And yet, if we're honest, I think a lot of us struggle to really offer either a robust answer as to why or to patiently walk with someone who is really deeply experiencing the fear. So, yeah, I think we, we know that most of us can't be just simply told not to feel something. That's not really how emotions work. I think that there's, there's some interesting truth. I think in this article in particular, that helps give a framework for why somebody might, you know, say these things or believe these things. But I think it has to go beyond just simply saying, you know, a pithy truism in the direction of another person who's really struggling, but to, but to enter in to ask questions like, why, what's beneath that fear? Like what's, what's underneath that? How long have you grappled with that? What are the reasons, you know, and if someone's never answered those questions or been asked those questions, then we patiently, we sit with them and to say, you know, it's actually, it's understandable that you might be afraid of some kind of economic downturn or a virus right. that we're still trying to get a handle on. You know what I mean? I, I think that there's a lot of that a lot of that feels like Jesus to me to say, yeah, it's I know that scripture commands these things. And yet I'm going to I'm going to enter into some of what you're experiencing right now. Right. Um, because what you're feeling is valid, even even if I don't understand it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And you ask, I, th- I think when we use like pithy uh, things like faith over fear, we think we're giving other people hope, 
right? Like, oh, mm. here's some hope for you. Just have faith over fear and it will conquer whatever. When in reality, I think it manifests itself in shame because then the person who's feeling fearful or feeling anxious goes, man, I still feel anxious. So that means I don't have enough faith. Like that means mm. like now my faith is deficient and there's something wrong with me in that level. Oh, okay. Like that didn't help me. <laughs> that didn't. And so I think, I don't, just don't think we, you and I've talked many times about this. I don't think we do nuance necessarily well. Mm. And, and and the nuance is, hey, uh, yes, you can have faith that conquers fear or do not be anxious for this reason, but but it's going to take some work and I'm going to be there with you and I'm going to enter into this with you. And that takes a whole lot more work and time and messiness than just the, I mean, think about it. Faith over fear is a is a wonderful point to make in a sermon. It's got two Fs. It's short. You can write it on the back of your bulletin, right? Like it works. <laughs> yes. But helping people understand what that actually means, how that's lived out is so hard because we don't really get it. But but so it doesn't mean it's not true, especially at times, but but not being willing to just sit with people and unpack it, it begins to kind of heap on more shame and more anxiety and and it kind of be uh it it becomes not helpful. Yeah, I think you're right, man. I think it's it's worth remembering, too, that we worship a God, a Messiah, who calms the storm sometimes, but other times walks in the midst of it and says, let me get in the boat with you. You know, and I think that That's there's right. to hold those intention is is worthwhile, that there's a reason the phrase fear not shows up so many times in Scripture but right. there's also a reason that almost every time it's followed with for I am with you, you know, and I think that's that's a that's a difficult tension to live in, but I think an important one to hold. That's a good word, man. Now, when you're done here, I, I am going to text you sometime in the next couple of weeks and just ask you, are you still reading the Gospel Coalition? When's the last time you got a Gospel Coalition? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can ask well, me here's as long as it's not on air. <laughs> there you go. Here's what we <laughs> Here's what we want to do next in the next hour. As we kind of like, again, we're trying to spend time this week uh, reflecting upon all the good things of the past two plus years of this show with Ian and I together uh, before Ian leaves. And so what we thought would be fun in the next hour uh, is we're going to you, you're going to get to listen to some of what Ian decided are some of his favorite interviews that we've able to done. We've often talked about how the interviews are really the people we've gotten to meet are, are really kind of the favorite thing we've gotten to do over mm-hmm. the last two years. And so uh, we've asked Ian to pick out some of his favorite interviews for today and also for a little bit of tomorrow. And we're going to do those next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, as we continue to get ready for Ian to leave here at the end of the week, we've asked him, what were some of your favorite interviews? And we're going to listen to those this hour. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are thrilled to have for an entire segment, none other than the illustrious Dr. Warren Anderson. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you. It's good to be with you guys. Warren, just in case somebody is not familiar with you or what you do, could you just briefly or not briefly introduce yourself to our Common Good audience? Sure. I direct what we call the DeMoss Center for Worship and the Performing Arts at my alma mater and Ian's alma mater, Justin mm-hmm. University. That center oversees four curriculum uh, focuses, music performance, music business and entrepreneurship, worship arts, and communication arts, and it also houses <laughs> Justin Theater, 
and then all of our performance ministry ensembles, uh, the largest of which I have the privilege of directing, and that's the Dubsky University Choir. That's great. Well, Warren, at your website, which I want people to be able to see, EmmausRoadWorshippers.com, you posted something really powerful just the other day called A Sonnet for Coronavirus Victims. It's up on our website, so uh, our Facebook page for people to see. We'd encourage them to go read it. But I'd love to hear from you just kind of your heart behind it. Why did you decide to write it? What are you hoping people will get from the uh, Sonnet for Coronavirus Victims? Yeah, um, a colleague of mine at Judson lost her husband to the virus mm-hmm. last week. Mm-hmm. And it was very unexpected, very sudden, and very traumatic. And I think uh, for anyone who doesn't have someone in his or her immediate sphere of influence who has died from this, it's very easy and understandable and no shame attached here, but it's all, it's very easy to think that it is someone else's problem Hmm. or that it's simply a problem for older folks. I've known two people personally, one in her 80s and one in her 90s. Now, I wasn't mm-hmm. great friends with them, but they were part of the extended Judson family, and they have died. Well, they've lived long lives, and, you know, all of that. But when it's someone who's roughly my age and in seemingly the prime of his health, that hits home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And about that same time, uh, social media was full of all kinds of, uh, pun intended, virulent um <laughs> Uh, demands for this or that or the other. Hmm. Some demanding that we shut up and pay attention to the experts in the medical field and stay at home. And others saying, shut up and pay attention. My portfolio's in the tank and we got to get back to work. And, right. and both of these are le- legitimate concerns. Mm-hmm. What I try to do in the sonnet is acknowledge both of them and try to just touch on the severity of both. Uh, without taking sides, because I don't think I don't think it's an either or. Yeah, uh, I, right. I think there are both and elements at work here. Well, and that's one of the things that I loved about it so much, and it's kind of been the heartbeat of the show since the beginning. You know, the word "common" there is really intended not just to be like, oh, so we can all sort of share in common what's good for everybody, but also how do we find middle ground in polarizing conversations? We've had a few of those the last year and a half or so. And you also have a thing called the Worship Leader Roadshow, and you were doing this well before the pandemic, where you're, you know, sort of visiting, dropping in on a bunch of Judson alum who have, uh, you know, taken on leadership roles at various different churches. What are you seeing in general from the church response to the coronavirus, to the pandemic, to the quarantine? What's been your kind of general posture and observation doing what you do there? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, uh, and I I tagged the last one I did on Facebook because one of our mutual friends, Joshua Hoig, over mm-hmm. at First Baptist in Elgin, did a stripped-down service mm-hmm. um, that was just piano and two vocals. Right. Uh, he sang and his wife, Melissa, sang. And it now, Joshua and Melissa are really, really good friends uh, with this staff member who lost her husband. So mm-hmm. it, it, he was visibly moved. And if you didn't know the story, you might just think that, you know, he was moved out of a general sense of being moved, which, mm-hmm. my goodness, 
worship leaders should go there a lot more frequently, in my opinion, than, than they do, all right? If you're not being moved to tears by what you're singing about, at least every once in a while, are you in the right profession? Hmm. I, I would question that. But in this case, it was even more powerful, and those of us who know the story knew what was going on. Hmm. And what I said at the end of uh, the Facebook post was, I wonder, you know, Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message. Hmm. And he said all kinds of things, but that's his biggest, most famous thing. And I think that contemporary worship, both before the pandemic and in this pandemic, way, 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 way more often than I think is necessarily healthy, the medium is in fact a message. You have to have the HD cameras. You have to have the hippest song with no more than four chords coming out of Hillsong or Bethel <laughs> or Elevation or whatever. <laughs> You have to have self-referential lyrics. You have to have all of these things. And in a time where there is global instability, my personal preference, and this is not wholly rich, but my personal preference would be for churches to acknowledge that instead Mm. of trying to pretend Mm. that everything is normal, so we're going to play the same music with the same set, and the only thing that will be different is there won't be any applause afterwards, so Jesus... Mm. I think that's maybe something we should be thinking about. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the Church Universal would be benefited more greatly by a frank, painful acknowledgement from the worship leaders that, no, everything is not the same, as a matter of fact. Right, right. And in fact, we need to, we need to bring that into our corporate worship. And I don't see a whole lot of that. I did see it last Sunday, and I was so, so pleased. Um, hmm. for all kinds of things. Wow. Ian and I have been talking a lot about, you know, what will churches look like whenever it is we get back? What's the quote-unquote new normal? As someone who's been so invested in this like yourself, what do you hope, if you can map out a year from now, uh, so churches don't just go back to the normal, what are some of the changes that you hope uh, always mark us coming out of something like this global pandemic? Wow. Brian, you're assuming that I'm I'm hopeful in this regard. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Yeah, and honestly, I'm not. Mm. And again, it's not that what we do in contemporary worship is evil. It's not that it's irreverent. It's not that it's not done with the best of intentions. And I'm not saying for a second that God isn't honored by what's going on. I just think there is more to offer the body of Christ than what we see on a pretty regular basis Hmm. in every church doing its darndest to be sure above almost all else that Hmm. it's relevant to the culture. And I'm not entirely sure we should have culture relevancy as the lead pony in our worship, not ever and especially not now. My suspicion, to answer your question, is that we will go back to business as usual, and I'll have a lot of fodder for my blog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is the perfect cliffhanger, and I imagine it's obvious now why, Warren, you're on a very, very short list of people that I consider to be very, very close friends and mentors. I'm incredibly grateful for you. I cannot encourage you enough. Go to EmmausRoadWorshippers.com. That's EmmausRoadWorshippers.com. Or you can find them on Twitter, at WAndersonTweets. And, brother, so grateful for you and your voice. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You guys keep doing the great work you're doing. I really love it. Thanks. Thank you.
You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We shared much earlier in the week that Ian is going to be moving with his family to Nashville, Tennessee. His time here uh, on The Common Good is coming to an end. As Ian is leaving, we asked him to pick some of his favorite interviews. And uh, he has done that, and we want you to enjoy them. We are thrilled to have Pastor Brian Zond. Welcome to the show, sir. Oh, it's good to be with you. So good to have you. Would you just take just a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? I'm 61 now, and I have pastored this church, this Word of Life church, for now 39 years. Wow. Uh, but actually, you know, it has roots that go back farther. So I tell people, look, I've been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> wow. wow. Uh, I don't recommend that, but that's uh, <laughs> that's that's what happened. And uh, so I've really done one thing. My bio is pretty simple. Pastor of Word of Life Church, St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, over the last 10 years, I've written eight or nine books. I say eight or nine. I mean, I've written eight, but I'm about done with the ninth. Nice. And nice. Uh, so... So uh, I've written books, and I used to travel and speak a lot. Haven't done any of that since March, and my day job is I pastor Word of Life Church. So hmm. in St. Joseph, Missouri, that's where I am, Love just it. north of Kansas City. Brian, uh, besides it being a real pleasure to have another Brian on the show, I'm glad for that. Uh, mm-hmm. could you, How do you spell I, it, though? Uh, with an I, the only Rock way on. to spell it. The only way to spell it. <laughs> Uh, I'm curious. I'd love to hear more of your story about coming to Jesus. You said it was pretty dramatic and kind of overnight. I'd love to just hear uh, a little bit more of that story. Well, I grew up. I mean, it wasn't like I was unaware of Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. I grew up in a good home and a family that went to the local Baptist church and all that. And I didn't I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It was just there. It was just kind of and Jesus was on the periphery of my life. Hmm. He occupied roughly the same kind of space as maybe like George Washington or something, <laughs> you know, just some sort of historical figure that's like important. Uh, and I went to a Fellowship of Christian Athletes sponsored event at the local university, November 9th, 1974. And the speaker was David Wilkerson. I don't know if anybody knows who that guy mm-hmm. is. This oh, is, yeah. you know, David Wilkerson of the. Well, originally of the cross and switchblade thing yes. and, and mm-hmm. his work with gangs in New York. And uh, the, I remember they had a Christian band playing that I thought was super lame. <laughs> and I felt like, man, that, that, is not, that does not even rock. That does not rock at all. And uh, I wasn't even really interested. I don't know why I was there. I got roped into it. You know, some other friends got me to go or something. I don't remember exactly. All I knew, all I know is that at the very end, there was this, you know, invitation given. And suddenly I just knew that I needed to do this, that I needed to say yes to Jesus. And it was suddenly very dramatic. And um, it's hard to describe, but I knew that I had encountered the living Christ. Mm. Uh, We went out with my friends afterwards and we went and, you know, we were just hanging out, went to get something to eat. And I was... I was uncharacteristically quiet, and I just thought, wow, something just really happened to me. And I, I got home about midnight. This will sound a little, you know, mystical, but I don't know how else to tell it. You asked the question, so <laughs> um, I walked into my bedroom, and it was as if, it's hard to describe, but it's as if the room was suddenly immersed in light. It was just wow. not like coming from one place, but it was like, 
it was like the room was filled with light from floor to ceiling. Hmm. And I, I fell to my knees and I lifted my hands and I worshiped Jesus. I'd never seen that done. I, I, you know, I could imagine that maybe people did that, but I'd never seen it done. Hmm. And uh, it was it was quite dramatic. I don't think at all that that this needs to be typical, that if people come to Jesus very gently or slowly or they can't even, you know, remember a time when they weren't, you know, drawn to Jesus. I don't think that's illegitimate at all. But that's my story. That's how it mm -hmm. happened. And uh, I was very quickly, you know, leading Bible studies at school. And leading a Bible study meant that I could just read a chapter of the Bible that I'd never read before, which was all of it the night before, and then teach it to other kids. <laughs> so that's and, and that that led to the catacombs and that led to Word of Life Church. So really, I've just kind of done one thing all of my life. Yeah. So, Brian, as we talk about your book, Postcards from Babylon, I guess kind of more foundationally, can you even describe for our people uh, Babylon and that background and how maybe right. it links to our country now? So, you know, in the in the story of Israel, uh, you have a people chosen by God to be unique, to uh, to be part of God's salvific efforts in the in the earth. Uh, but in their long history, their long story, there comes this calamitous moment when in 587 Jerusalem is destroyed and the people are carried away into exile. Mm. And so now they have the challenge of remaining faithful to the living God, but they're, they're, they have to live as exiles. And so this is what the book of Daniel is about. So they're having to try to navigate this narrow uh, passage of, on the one hand, you have to make your living in Babylon. You, you, you know, they're told that by the prophet Jeremiah, seek the welfare of this city. Right. And, and so they're employed even by the, even by the, by Nebuchadnezzar and by the royal court. And yet there's a line they can't cross. And so they might have to brave lion's dens or fiery furnaces. Mm -hmm. So this is what this book is about, is about how do the people of God maintain fidelity to the living God while living in a broader pagan culture. Now, and, and I think people understand that story. Babylon is the, is the quintessential iconic image of empire within, uh, within the scriptures. Now you get into the New Testament, and at the beginning of the first epistle, uh, first epistle of Peter, you have Peter saying, he, he's writing to, he calls them the exiles. Hmm. And, and he describes the provinces in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Uh, they're not exiles in the sense that they haven't always lived there or they were displaced to there, like the Jewish exiles to Nebuchadnezzar or to uh, Babylon. Rather, by virtue of their baptism, hmm. they have they, they, these are citizens of the Roman Empire, at least many of them would be, others might be slaves, but they're inhabitants, let's say that, of the Roman Empire. And this is what they've known all their life. But now with their confession that Jesus is Lord, they have been baptized and suddenly they're exiles in the land of their birth. Mm. And they have to learn how to live uh, faithfully. And at the end of that letter, Peter writes cryptically, she who is in Babylon greets you. Right. Well, I mean, the, the tradition is that Peter is writing from Rome. That's what's being referred to. At this time, Babylon is hardly even a city anymore. It's kind of mm -hmm. walked off the age of history, uh, mm. but it's a cryptic way of referring to, to Rome as a Babylon. So as the Jews 
had to figure out how to live in Babylon and still maintain their fidelity to God. So now Christians have to learn how to live in the Roman Empire uh, and maintain their fidelity to Jesus Christ. And this is, of course, what the book of Revelation is mostly about. I don't know if people know that, but that's mostly what the book of Revelation is about. It's mostly a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire Mm -hmm. that is portrayed in various ways. Um, At one point, it's portrayed as a drunken woman riding on the back of a beast. Mm. And the woman is Roma, uh, which is the patron goddess of Rome. And readers would get that. It would be like someone today depicting the Statue of Liberty as a drunken prostitute. <laughs> mm, oh and you wonder why John the Revelator ends up in prison or, you know, in exile on right, Patmos, right. Alcatraz. Uh, so so it, is, it is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire calling Christians to live faithfully to Jesus Christ. Mm. And I think that speaks powerfully to the situation we have for Christians living in the American context. America is... America is huge, and it, it's it's four things. It's so big. It's not just one thing. It's it's a nation. It's a culture. It's a empire. It's a religion. Hmm. Um, as a nation and culture, I mean, you know, obviously it's a, it's a political nation, right, with its fifty states and all of that. Uh, and it's a culture because you know, back when I used to travel the world, I could find American culture everywhere I went. Right. It's a, right. It's, you know, it's exported its culture around the world. As a nation and as a culture, the United States is a mixed bag, but there's much that is admirable. Hmm. There's much that is inspirational. Right. And I want to be very clear about that. Hmm. Uh, as an empire, that becomes problematic because it is a challenge to the sovereignty of God. And as a religion, uh, well, of course, Christians are going to have to ultimately confess that's idolatrous. Right. Right. Um, I, I don't know what our listeners are thinking when I say America is a religion, but it is hmm. complete with founding myths and founding fathers and holy days and sacred ground and hmm. iconic images and liturgy and liturgical gestures. It carries a powerful religious component. But the big problem is that uh, I'm a pastor. You guys are pastors. Mm-hmm. I think the greatest challenge facing American pastors today is that we are tasked with trying to make disciples of people who have already been thoroughly discipled into mm. a rival religion. Mm. But the rival religion borrows so extensively from the vernacular of the Christian faith that people don't understand that we are talking about two rival religions. One historic Orthodox Christianity and another, which is an Americanized version of it, mm. uh, which is a deep distortion of mm. the purposes of God. Mm. So, for example, you know, Abraham Lincoln said, and nearly every, every other president has said it since, that America is the, is the last best hope of earth. Mm. No, it's not. Not if you're a Christian. Right, right. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is not. He's the last, best, and only hope for the salvation mm. of the world. That is a solidly orthodox statement. Mm. Uh, so that's an example of a religious uh, aspect mm. of American devotion. So if patriotism means pride of place and devotion to civic responsibility, I'm all for it. Mm. But if patriotism becomes much more than that, where it's my country, right or wrong, no matter what, 
uh, that's when it's dangerous. That's when, when you see on a church lawn, when you see a church that likes to fly flags, uh, and they've got two flags but one flagpole, and they want to have a Christian flag and an American flag, what gets top billing? Always the American flag. Right, right. That's a moment of unintended truth-telling, that their allegiance to Jesus Christ is, in fact, penultimate, that what comes first is allegiance to nation, and that's a problem. Well, that is, I think, just about the perfect way to wrap this up. If you're just joining us, that has been Pastor Brian Zahn, founding and lead pastor of Word of Life Church, and also the author of numerous books. He said eight or nine, I think, which means nine is on its way. But Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God and Postcards from Babylon, the Church in American Exile. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, it was fun to be with you all. Just You just sat back and let me rant and do my thing. But, <laughs> I but love it, it. It was not, that was nice of you. Let's, yeah. let's do it again sometime. <laughs> again. All right. <laughs> You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We shared much earlier in the week that Ian is going to be moving with his family to Nashville, Tennessee. His time here uh, on The Common Good is coming to an end. As Ian is leaving, we asked him to pick some of his favorite interviews, and uh, he has done that, and we want you to enjoy them. We have a very special guest. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Aubrey <laughs> Sampson. <laughs> hey, guys. You just yourself. Right? I did. Turned into a dance party. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right, so let me just let you guys know a bit about Aubrey. She's a gifted teacher, a writer, a church planner who offers incredible perspective in the midst of trying experiences. She tackles the subject of lament, a topic that I personally am really uh, interested in, um, in an accessible, vulnerable, and winsome way, bringing her trademark humor and wisdom to a difficult topic. As an author and promoter, she's driven, intentional, and real. She'll be an asset not only in the writing, editing process, but also in the marketing, publicity process as well. You can find more at AubreySampson.com or on Twitter at AubSamp, which I think is a really brilliant handle. Oh, I thank you. And you wrote this book called The Louder Song, which I just think the premise alone is brilliant. Would you just talk a little bit about this book, why you wrote it, your hope for the book for anyone listening? Yep. Um, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Of course. So uh, 2015, so about three and a half years ago, my husband Kevin and I were in this really incredible season. Um, like you said, we're church planters. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so we opened the doors to our church service and uh, we were just celebrating all that God was doing in our lives and in our neighborhood yeah. and really exciting time. That same week, uh, my first book came out, which is a book called Overcomer. Hmm. And so, you know, all these dreams that we had just been like praying through and the fruition of them was happening in Mm -hmm. one week. Mm. And I woke up in the middle of that week and just uh, inexplicably couldn't walk. Oh my God. And um, at the time I was a runner, so I thought it was a running injury Mm. and I tried, you know, rice, the rest, (laughs) what what is it? Rest, ice, compression, elevation. Didn't work. And uh, Kevin was actually carrying me around the house for a few days. And wow. finally, um, we thought, you should go to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> you know? right. um, so anyway, went to the hospital, was, was hospitalized and diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, which impacts my joints. Wow. But it just it came out of nowhere. Wow. Um, and then on top of that, in the middle of that week, we were um, grieving the loss of my cousin, Cameron, who was like a childhood best friend to me. He's mm. like an uncle to my kids. Mm. Um, he was snowshoe hiking in Crater Lake National Park, Oregon, 
and he took a picture of the park, which if you've seen it, it's absolutely gorgeous. Right. Um, he texted it to me and a couple other family members, and then he actually fell off the side oh my of gosh. the um, the cliff oh my word. and died. And wow. it's been uh, three and a half, four years, and we still they still haven't found his body. The mm. creatures are still searching wow. for his body. So um, that was happening. And as you can imagine, we were grieving. My family was grieving. And then on top of that, Mm -hmm. our youngest son, who's doing awesome now. I like to preface that. But at the time, um, we found out he was having some struggles with his spinal cord. He had spinal cord surgery, was um, going through ongoing developmental care, physical therapy, et cetera. So anyway, that's kind of a long way of saying that it was this season of awesome celebration Mm. and this season of I don't know what's happening right yeah. now. Yeah, no kidding. And um, I've been a follower of Jesus for 30 years. Um, and I, for the first time, thought, am I praying to the ceiling fan? Yeah, right. You know, like, does God see me? Yep. Is God here? And, you know, I'm sort of this, I, again, I've been a Christian for a long time, so I sort of know hmm. in seasons like this, you're supposed to rise above and yeah. more than yeah, conquer yeah. and <laughs> do all the things Christians are supposed to do. But I just, my faith like melted to the ground yeah. and I didn't know how to make sense of it. And so this book, um, which I know we'll get into in a little bit, but this book is really sort of that journey. Wow. And how I began to lay those things before God mm. and eventually found him in it. Wow. The book is really about lament. It's a topic that I think, man, we don't do a good job of talking about. And I think lament carries with it a couple of connotations too. Some people feel like it's this old churchy word, so they kind of run from it. Other people know full well what it is and still run from it because like you were saying, give me to the mountaintop, like give me to victory or at the very least like sermon application, like help, help me to use this in my next talk. And that is, I I think I feel the weight even of that tendency. Why, why is lament so important both in a, in a biblical context, but also to you personally, like how, how do we lament better and what are some maybe the pitfalls that keep us from actually really engaging? Yeah. Those are some great questions. Um, I, you know, I think for people who don't know lament sort of at its basic form is simply crying out to God mm-hmm. in grief or in pain. And scripturally, it's often in the form of poetry or song. Mm. Um, there's actually more lament psalms in scripture than there are praise psalms yes, in scripture, right. which I just think is fascinating. Totally. You see the majority of God's relationship with the Israelites is full of lament yeah. again and again and again. Um, I think lament became important for me because I was like most people wanting to sort of rush to the other side of, of this suffering and this grief. Mm. But I found that when I tried to do that, <laughs> it just became sort of a joke. Yeah. Mm. Um, I was avoiding, I was pretending I was not actually experiencing real healing mm. or real transformation or even really inviting God into all this pain. And so to see that uh, throughout scripture, God not only, allows us to lament to him, but actually gives us language. For yes. Lament. yes. That was very freeing for me to realize that I could say to God, all of the ugly, unfettered, unfiltered things. Totally. And he wasn't going to, you know, brush me aside. He wasn't going to reject me. He actually wants, he wants our praise of course, and our adoration, but he also wants those really broken, hard places. Yep. And so the journey of lament for me was simply a process of, saying everything to God mm. and then just sort of waiting oh, until yeah. God showed up in it. And and I think that's a way we can walk 
other people through their pain is allow them to say everything they need to totally. say. Totally. One of the things too that I think is really evident in scripture is that God would rather we yell at him than walk away from him. That's right. right? Mm. And like yeah. you were saying, it isn't just that God's like okay with lament. He like invites it. And I think part of the reason is because that's real. That's where we're actually at. If, if anything, like the story, the Bible is filled with stories of people who are jacked up or shaking a fist. Like, did you miss me? Did you forget me? Yeah. And so you just spoke to the people who know somebody who's in the pit of grief. Could you just spend a couple of minutes speaking maybe even pastorally to the people who are in the pit of grief themselves? Yep. They're, yeah. they're the ones that are like, this is all fine and good. A lot of song. I'm into that. <laughs> right. I right. don't see an end to this though. Yeah. Like I'm barely hanging on. Yeah. Can you just speak to a little bit of the people that are maybe in yes, that season right now? Absolutely. I would say a couple things. First, I'll just start by saying, I'm sorry for the pain that you're mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Um, I, if you're wondering if God sees you, I believe that God sees you. If you're wondering if God hears you, I believe that God hears That's right. you. And um, if you're wondering if God is with you, even when you can't feel him, mm-hmm. I believe that God is with you. That's right. God is mm-hmm. close to the brokenhearted. That's the right. Bible says, um, and I would say most laments actually in the Bible begin with the word how. Mm. And so I would encourage you, if you feel like you have the strength to do it, begin to express all of your hows to God. God, how could you let this happen? Wow. God, how is this going to ever get better? God, how long will this last? And you can write those down. You can say them out loud. Get in your closet or get in your shower and just scream or, or cry. Pray those hows to God and then if you can, surrender then to him and just wait. Mm. And it might take a long time. Right. You may right. not ever find really good answers or solutions, but I have no doubt you'll find God's presence with you in the really tender places of your soul. Aubrey, I'm so grateful for your Thank voice, you so for your much. perspective. Thanks, Thank you for joining. This has been Aubrey Sampson, who wrote the book, The Loudest Song, Listening for Hope in the Midst of Lament. You can find out more at AubreySampson.com or on Twitter at AubSamp. Uh, and Aubrey, uh, Please come back sometime. Oh, yeah. Thanks so, so much for having open me. Oh, my gosh. It's Thank been our pleasure. You. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We shared much earlier in the week that Ian is going to be moving with his family to Nashville, Tennessee. His time here uh, on The Common Good is coming to an end. As Ian is leaving, we asked him to pick some of his favorite interviews. And uh, he has done that, and we want you to enjoy them. Mark Galley, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. It is so good to have you back. We decided it's been July since you were here yeah, last. Yeah. But Not quite a year. For okay. anyone who doesn't know you, your story, who you are, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, and you can be as personal or professional as you like. Okay. Well, the most interesting thing about my life right now is that I'm retired, newly there retired. There you go. <laughs> Congratulations. So there's, nothing, there's really, really nothing more to say than that, <laughs> other than I don't have to go anywhere or be anywhere at any particular time. I want to be retired. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds beautiful. And tomorrow morning, for example, I'm going fishing up in Wisconsin. Uh, so, you really are? Yeah. That's phenomenal. So, well, now my jealousy is But before is that, <laughs> I was editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. Uh, most well-known, unfortunately or unfortunately, for an editorial I wrote in December. <laughs> mm-hmm. About Donald Trump, I served at Christianity Today all, uh, in three different magazines there for thirty years. Before that, I was a pastor for ten years. Wow! You have all these talents and all these interests, which I, re- I actually really appreciate. You mentioned earlier, like I'm going to learn to draw. Why not? Yeah. Like that's yeah. You have the the bandwidth now to do that. 
Um, what is on the horizon for you writing-wise? Do you have stuff that's been in the pressure cooker for a while? They're like, now I really have the energy to, to take mm. a dive into that. Well, I think I need to. The, the book, uh, when you had me on the show in July, was based on a series of uh, essays called The Elusive Presence, which have now been expanded into a book called uh, When Did We Start Forgetting God, which will be due out in April. Oh, outstanding. In which I basically the thesis is that we uh, have neglected the love of God uh, for the sake of the love of neighbor, and mm. I make an argument that we need to be spending more time on loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with mm. all our mind, with all our strength. And I touch on some of what that might look like, but it's mostly a book of critique, how we've, how we've forgotten how to do that, mm. or how we, mm. we get sidetracked from doing that. And I feel an obligation that maybe I should, because I've had a lot of people say, what does that exactly look yeah. like? Yeah, right. It doesn't mean you ignore the neighbor, but what does it exactly look like? So I think I need to th- do a follow-up book that kind of talks about that a little more concretely. Hmm. That's one thing. I, I have studied, been reading and studying fiction for some time, and I'm hoping to dabble in that that world. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Nice. So, uh so those are the That's two, two principles and the things I'm thinking about right now. And yeah. then in the meantime, I've been given a lot of invitations based on this editorial to speak at like Princeton Seminary, Princeton University, wow. Eastern University, actually a, uh, a magazine outlet in Switzerland. So no kidding. So I'm, I have to prepare those talks and that sort of thing. Yeah. Do you like the, uh, the platform of like giving addresses or teaching in uh, those environments? It's, it's, it's okay. It's more of a, you know, I uh, when I was in it, being inundated with all these, I just told my wife, I just wonder if this is a distraction from what I'm really supposed to be doing because mm. I'm, I'm really tired. It just feels like work. Yeah, mm. right. And she kind of took me to the woodshed and said, who do, who do you think opened these doors for you? Okay. <laughs> I like her. Yeah. You cannot just give up because it's hard and you don't like it. Yeah. yeah. All right, all right, all right. She's so like, you're I kinda, again. Yeah, yeah. So I try to respond to any invitation I get if I'm free. Hmm. Uh, I try to respond, and then what comes of it, it's, you know, it's up to the Lord what comes yeah, of it. And I'll, right. I'll do what I'm supposed to do in the meantime. Yeah, I love that. With everything you've seen at CT, and then obviously this firestorm around this editorial, as we march towards this election, um, I don't know how to ask this except to say, are you hopeful for the evangelical church, or are you uh, worried? Where, what is your general feel now? Yeah, I think I'm a little more worried or a little less optimistic or hopeful than I was when I was actually at uh, CT. Well, mm. I should say before I wrote this editorial, mm. it does seem like it's going to be uh, it does seem like there's already a deep split in the movement. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. may, it may just solidify at this point that yeah. if you're an evangelical, you're a Republican. And right. if right. Yeah, and you just you know, that's just the way it is. And there's right. no more room for a place in that world. For there to be real, genuine, we got Republicans, we got Democrats, all in the same. But Jesus is ultimately Lord. Yeah, right, right. And um, we'll see what uh, you know. We'll just have to see how it unfolds. But um, I think one of my main things I'd like to see is that Christians on the left and on the right can agree to disagree and agree forcefully, disagree forcefully if they need to. Yeah, yeah. right. What, what I find especially troubling is when. Uh, it moves to the level of, oh, you can't possibly be a Christian if you mm-hmm. voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't possibly be a Christian if you think Hillary Clinton would make a great president. Yeah. Right, right. Where they actually question the faith of the person based yes. on their political choices. Yeah. Right. As you can tell from my editorial, I have deep convictions about certain political choices. But I don't think it's my job to judge the state of the soul of those mm. people who disagree right. with me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I can disagree with their actions. I can disagree 100%. with their words. I can right. tell them I think they should do or think differently. 
but their relationship with Jesus is their relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. And we're just going to let, let the Lord take care of that. Mm. Why, why do you think that that posture is so rare? Because Brian and I, not nearly as eloquently, have been saying a lot of those similar things for yeah. a while now. And sometimes we'll even catch heat for it. Like, how in the world can you even entertain the idea that a Christ follower would vote for blank? Yeah. And I'm like, right. I think you're missing yeah. the, the point, actually. Why yeah. do you think that's so rare? To feel the way that you feel, it it is interesting. I that would that probably deserves a, a book or two, but it, it does seem like politics in American life, as the nation has become increasingly secular, the most important thing that transcends our day to day living that's bigger than us. Whoops, that's bigger than us. Yeah, is politics. Yeah, and anything that's bigger than us takes on an importance in our lives that we want to make ultimate, mm. even though we know better as Christians it shouldn't be ultimate. Uh, but you see that in the life uh, in the university with where the life of the mind is something that's supposed to be big. But you mm-hmm. see tremendous divisions there. Yeah. Rancorous right. divisions. You see that in the field of art. People in the art world, they get they get really upset when someone presents a, a gallery show or whatever that they whose whose vision of the world they don't agree with. Right. That's because art is supposed to be this thing that transcends and is bigger than us. And so we get really passionate about it. Hmm. Uh, and as Christians who live in the world, we become mm-hmm. of the world in a lot of ways, you know, whether we think we're being shaped by it or not. Hmm. So, yeah, it just happens uh, that we start to begin to think that a person's political stance is actually indic- indicative of, so- of the state of their soul. That's well said. It is. I guess you said you used to be a pastor before being at CT. If you were pastoring now uh, and you were talking about this subject to your church, Hmm. what are one or two things you'd tell them? Like, hey, we've got to do this. This this is how we do this well in the political world. Hmm. Yeah, a couple of things I'd say that I have said in editorials is just to always remember that the most important person in the universe (laughs) whom we call Lord every week is Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's the most important political thing we do every week is we announce that Jesus is Lord, not, not anyone else. That's right. And the second thing, I, I would work really hard at helping people in my congregation talk to one of one another face to face about the things they mm-hmm. they believe politically. Yes. I would have uh, small groups to just say, "Okay, you know, tell us what you think and why you think it," because there's something really helpful instead of this abstract. This person voted for Trump, or this person voted for Hillary, and right. Yeah, there's all these uh, labels we want to put on. Right. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm dealing with a human being hmm. whose children I know, whose children I've taught in Sunday school, uh, whose wife went through a battle with cancer, and all of a sudden you're going, "All right, all right, all right." I just got to back off a little bit and realize this is a real human being that's taking this point of view. I really mm-hmm. disagree with him. Right. But he's a brother in Christ, and I, the churches that have been able to do that, I think it's just it's a wonderful model for the rest of the culture. Absolutely. I think that's remarkable. Mark, it has been so wonderful having you on the show again. Before we wrap up, where can people go to find you or follow you on Twitter or read what you're writing or uh, Yeah, say I hello? post on Twitter every once in a while now. Uh, that's Mark Galley. That's my handle there. And then I have a website, markgalley.com. And then I also publish something called The Galley Report, no. uh, which you can find by going to CT. ChristianityToday.com slash the gallery report, and you subscribe to that. I, I post on Fridays. I link to stories and comment on them. That is awesome. outstanding. Mark Galley, thank you so much this for joining us today. This has been a ton of fun. We'll hope that you'll come back again sometime. And maybe we'll take this to, uh, to fishing together. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's been Mark Galley. When you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hope for Your Life.